Welcome to Eagles, Globes, and Anchors, the strategically-minded podcast of the Marine Corps War College, covering the intersection of strategy, security, and warfare. Welcome to Eagles, Globes, and Anchors, the strategically-minded podcast of Marine Corps University. Today, we're discussing naval strategy. My guest today is Mr. Brian McGrath. Mr. McGrath is the founding managing director of Ferry Bridge Group, LLC, a niche consultancy specializing in naval and national security issues, including national and military strategy, strategic planning, executive communications, strategic communications, and emerging technologies. A retired naval officer, Mr. McGrath spent 21 years on active duty, including a tour of command of the USS Bulkley, a guided missile destroyer homeported in Norfolk. In command, he received the Admiral Elmo Zumwalt Award for Inspirational Leadership from the Surface Navy Association, and his ship earned the USS Arizona Memorial Trophy, signifying its selection as the fleet's most combat-ready warship. His final duties ashore included serving as team lead and primary author of the Navy's 2007 Maritime Strategy, a cooperative strategy for 21st century sea power. Mr. McGrath, thanks so much for coming on the show. It's really good to be with you. Thank you. Before we start our discussion of naval strategy, tell us a little bit about your background. You have a, a very well-known, well-respected Twitter presence, but, but how did you come to be where you are today? Well, I think the Twitter presence is my crowning achievement, so thank you for bringing that up. <laughs> uh, I've been a sur- I was a surface warfare officer through my whole career, moving up through cruisers primarily into command of a destroyer. And at a point after my command tour... I was offered the ability to come uh, to Washington and help write the 2007 Maritime Strategy. And I had a great team, including some fantastic Marines uh, and Coast Guardsmen that were on that team. And it enlivened in me an interest in the intellectual pursuits on this side of the gun. And, And that's what I've been doing ever since. Great. Now, in 2017, you were the deputy director of the Hudson Institute Center for American Sea Power. And in that capacity, you helped to develop the surface Navy's distributed lethality concept. Can you talk to us a little bit about what that concept is, what its significance is for the Navy as it prepares to, to lean into the future environment? Yeah, the, the idea um, was earlier in my time. It was about 2014, earlier in my time at Hudson. Um, I was working with the director of surface warfare at the time, Rear Admiral Tom Roden at the Pentagon. And we were reeling from the latest management decision at the Office of the Secretary of Defense on the littoral combat ship. And coming from that imbroglio with the the secretary was this desire to to help make the uh, littoral combatant ship into something more than it had been up to 2014. And he and I were talking, and we were talking about adding some missiles and some some electronic warfare and some, this and that. And then I just I just looked across the table at him, and I said, you know, we can do more than that. And he said, what do you mean? I said, we haven't built a warship in the United States that can kill another warship since DDG number 78, which hmm. is the USS Porter, which was commissioned in 1999. From 1999 forward, none of the destroyers that were built were built with anti-ship missiles on them. And I th- said, we really need to think deeply about making every ship more lethal, distributing that lethality in a way that provides numerous axes of attack and provides an enemy with more numerous 
targets to have to keep track of. Additionally, if you add weapons to something like an LCS, it can no longer be ignored within an ISR architecture by an opponent. It has to be accounted for. And so you, you essentially dilute the available resources that they have by adding targets, and you then also dilute the concentration of weapons that can be applied to any one target by forcing them to apply their total number of weapons across a greater number of targets. And was the threat there in 2014? Why had that capability atrophied at that point? Well, that's a great question. The threat had indeed dissipated through the Cold War, but as we all began to limber up for great power competition and see a rising China, administrative decisions made within the Department of the Navy in the late Cold War and then through the post-Cold War era de-emphasized anti-surface warfare, the killing of ships by ships, mm-hmm. and had applied more of that mission area to the carrier air wing and to the torpedoes resident in the uh, submarine force. We had a proposition within uh, surface warfare and within this concept of distributed lethality that by distributing a more lethal force, you create a, a more effective conventional deterrent. And that conventional deterrence was called for in the way China was rising and the way China was viewing its near abroad. We needed to have a team on the field all the time that was ready to fight rather than a team that would come across the horizon after they'd already earned their objective. And was this the same logic behind the drive to reach a 355-ship Navy? Uh, No, not exactly. Um, uh, Remember, it's 2014 or so when we were cooking up this this distributed lethality idea. And one of the, I think one of the enduring virtues of the idea was that having a more distributed and lethal surface force makes sense irrespective of how big a force you have. Although a larger force can paper over some sins of, you know, less lethality or less effectively networked. Having more ships and more missiles can inefficiently address those sorts of things. But the, the rise to 355 was the result of work done throughout the second decade of this century, where, you know, we looked and we thought, we looked at the force structure necessary to do what was asked of the Navy. And what was asked of the Navy was to be present and powerful in multiple places, essentially the Western Pacific, the Indo-Asia Pacific, and Europe. We had de-emphasized Europe for a long time. We had gone to a a two-hub Navy. This two-hub Navy was being insufficiently well addressed by the 308-ship Navy. People like me, people who are writing and talking about these things, we said, not only do we need a third hub, we need to return to Europe, but we have to get bigger. And there was over the this decade, or the last decade, sorry, since we're 2020 now, there was a steady drumbeat for growing the Navy. And what do we sacrifice to reach 355? I mean, that is, that's got to be a costly proposition. It's an enormously costly proposition. And uh, I am fond of telling people who ask questions like that, that there are plenty of people who wa- in Washington who can tell you how to spend the same amount of more money more efficiently 
or tell you what you can harvest in order to generate more resources. My point is we don't spend enough money on sea power. If that means that we have to take money away from other elements of what our government does, be they defense or non-defense, so be it. I'm here to advocate for larger investments in sea power because I think sea power plays a disproportionate role in the sustainment and continuance of our prosperity and our defense. So we've got growth of the fleet. How else does the Navy prepare itself for great power competition to face a peer rival or threat? Uh, It has to invest in technology. It has to invest in technology. There's no question about it. Sensors, weapons, networking. We clearly are facing two opponents, potential opponents in this great power competition, who are spending a good deal of money on research and development and science and technology, and they're moving those technologies uh, faster into the fleet. So I think we need to do a better job of not only spreading the seed corn around, but then harvesting those technologies quicker, moving them to the fleet faster with less certainty in their success and experimenting with them in order to harden operational concepts that then create the need for actual capabilities. And I would anticipate there would be a decent amount of Navy Marine Corps teaming in that. I'm here today to do a, a speech in about an hour at Marine Corps University on integrated American sea power. It has been my number one operational pet peeve for 10 years. And so when I read Commandant Berger's planning guidance when he came into office, uh, I recognized that I had ideas that support his visionary brilliance. uh, And I want to help do that. And I want to share some of those ideas. So yeah, more integration between the Navy and Marine Corps is the path to American sea power being applied most effectively towards our national aims. So let's do a quick dry run. This will air probably a month after your talk today, so there's no spoiler alert necessary. You're not going to tip your hand. Students aren't going to know and get bored yeah. in the talk. But what are the key takeaways that yeah, you'll well, talk about n- today? Number one, that the national security strategy of the United States changed the nation from a posture of conventional deterrence by punishment to conventional deterrence by denial. Mm-hmm. That's point number one in my case. Point number two in my case is that the forces and formations resident within the Department of the Navy within the Navy and the Marine Corps, take care of a huge proportion of the conventional deterrence by denial knitting that this nation does around the world. But point number three of my case is that were the Navy and the Marine Corps to continue to plan, invest, resource, operate, and create strategy the way they have been doing it, we would be suboptimizing suboptimizing our capabilities and wasting resources, that there needs to be a view of the Navy and Marine Corps as a maritime weapon system. And this maritime weapon system has to be a top-down, bottom-up, has to be reviewed top-down and bottom-up for how we operate and fight, at least within the maritime portion of, uh, of this pursuit, as a system not next to each other, not interoperating with each other, integrated with each other, a unified warfighting whole from the sea. So we are at the Marine Corps University. What role does education play in that? Well, first of all, I I don't know of where the doctrine and tactics 
exist right now for this integrated force that General Berger is aiming at, the CNO is aiming at, and that I am aiming at. We've got doctrine factories in the Navy and doctrine factories in the Marine Corps, but I, I have not seen doctrine appropriate at this level of integration. Were that doctrine to be created, and I, that's not really the job of education, I don't believe, but um, were that doctrine to be created, especially within the PME world, bringing that back into the the Marine Corps and the Navy in a way that helps break down cultural barriers to implementation. I think that's the greatest contribution that education is going to make in bringing integrated American sea power to our two services is to is attacking those cultures. Within the Navy, it's this there, we have surface combatants and we have amphibs. Well, no. In, the, in an integrated force, we probably won't need to have that kind of a demarcation. When the Navy and the Marine Corps have operated together in the past, there have been these really arcane rules about making use of uh, Marine Corps capabilities while you're floating. Though some of that was cultural. Some of that was, hey, I'm the, uh, I'm the MU commander and that's not available to you and unless you declare an emergency, number one. But I need to husband that resource for the land battle. An integrated force where the cultural barriers had been knocked down and where the forces were educated would recognize that the forces of the Navy and the Marine Corps within that unified command structure are available to that commander. It doesn't matter who the commander is. It doesn't matter what service it is. So if people want to learn more about preparing the Navy for the future fight, and ideally preparing an integrated Marine Corps-Navy team for the future fight, where can they look? They could read the Commandant's Guidance to start, because <laughs> uh, I think it's the best document on the street right now. The CNO put a f- uh, what he called a fragmentary order, or a frago, out at the end of 2019. It has a little bit about what he calls integrated American naval power. But I would suggest that there there really isn't much on the subject yet. You could go back and read the Center for Strategic and Budgetary Assessments 2017 uh, Fleet Architecture Study, and you could see how that study contemplates what we refer to today as amphibious forces joining with the surface combatants and submarines of the United States Navy in providing this conventional deterrence force a conventional deterrence force that would ride on some different capabilities, including a great deal more use of the F-35B as a fleet air asset, as opposed to, you know, a a very sophisticated air to mud platform. So I would read that 2017 force structure assessment. And then I would turn to young, really smart people that I read in uh, War on the Rocks all the time, Olivia Garrard, Scott Cuomo, I think is his name. There's a cottage industry and really smart Marines writing about this subject right now. And it's, uh, I don't, first of all, I don't see my grandchildren in the Navy doing that right now. I just see it within the Marine Corps. So a lot of this stuff has to be made up. That's for sure. Great. And we are a big fan of Scott Cuomo here at MCU. He is one of the first group of Marines to complete their PhD as part of the Marine Corps Strategist PhD program and should graduate in May and go forward and take command and do great things. I'm still so, not going to call him doctor. Well, you, that is for the two of you to uh, negotiate. Right. I'm not worried about it. <laughs> so last question for you. 
What are you reading right now that our listeners should know about? And that doesn't have, have to have anything to do with naval integration, future fight. So I just finished a book that I love because it was way out of my depth. It was a book called The Rise and Fall of the Double Eagle by John <laughs> Schindler, a book about the Habsburg Empire and the fall, its fall as a result of World War I, but specifically as a result of how the Austro-Hungarian armed forces were just not up to the task of the first two months of the war. And they just never get out of their way after that. I don't know that much. The, the movie 1917 caused me to want to know more about World War One, And so I read this book, I think, especially because it was an Eastern Front book, which tends to get less academic coverage than obviously the Western Front. Uh, it was It was a great, a really great read. And then I'm reading, I just cracked it two nights ago, The Map of Knowledge by a British professor whose last name I think is Moller, M-O-L-L-E-R. Uh, and it is a, uh, it's a fascinating premise. I, I, I look forward to figuring out whether she proves it or not, but about sort of the death of knowledge, the great knowledge piled up by the Greeks and Romans at the end of the Roman Empire as we go into the Dark Ages, and how that knowledge diffuses out into essentially seven cities uh, around the, the the medieval world, some of them in the Islamic world, some of them in traditional Europe, but uh, cities where the the knowledge was incubated or was protected for essentially a thousand years, recopied by scribes and, and that sort of thing, to be discovered in the uh, in the Renaissance. And so there's this, this interesting movement of knowledge diffuses out to these seven cities and then comes back into the Western world. And Professor Moeller evidently uh, describes that movement. And hmm. I'm looking forward to fishing again. That sounds really interesting. It yeah. is. Should be. So Mr. McGrath, thank you so much for coming on the show. To keep up with the good work of Marine Corps University, follow us on social media at at Marine Corps U. Thanks to our producer, Jin Padja Howell, our brand new show manager, Captain Matt Brewer, and the Marine Corps University Foundation for their support. I'm your host, Becky Johnson. Thank you for listening to Eagles, Globes, and Anchors, the strategically-minded, innovative podcast of Marine Corps University. This concludes the EGA podcast. Thank you for joining us. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the United States Marine Corps or the Department of Defense. You can follow the Marine Corps War College on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at at McWar College. And as always, our podcast music is Stuck in Traffic by Romero. Have a great day.